It's time to break the silence and open up the dialogue around the topics of miscarriage and baby loss. No more shame. No more taboo. Let's ditch it for the sake of our children. The ones who are, the ones who will come. And in memory of the ones who never came to be. This is the Worst Girl Gang Ever podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Worst Girl Gang Ever. Today we're joined by Alicia Burnett, who... Um, I will I'll introduce you to her. I'll introduce her to you, but then then she can tell you a bit more about herself. She's a Tommy's <laughs> midwife. Wow, mate, that was convoluted. I know, right? <laughs> Get your words up. So polished. <laughs> Get your words up. She's a Tommy's midwife and also so fantastically is a co-founder of Black Baby Loss Awareness Week, which is coming up soon. So we wanted to get her on so that we can chat a bit about the Awareness Week, how we can all get involved and help out. And also what what made you, what what brought you to this community and um and and doing all of the wonderful things that you do. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Not at all. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, I think I'll start with your last question. My memory's not great, so that's the question I can remember. <laughs> um, so what brought me to the lost community is basically my own experience of loss. So I lost my little boy coming up to six years ago now. Um, and I'm only very recently, only very recently, maybe October of last year, I actually started speaking about my experience of bereavement. Before that, nobody knew, really. Only Mm -hmm. people that had seen me pregnant or I'd announced my pregnancy too. And every now and then, it's almost like grief is like a, almost like a scab. And every Mm -hmm. now and then it gets rubbed or knocked and the scab breaks and you start to bleed again. So every now and then, um, my story would break through and I would disclose to somebody during a moment where I felt safe to. They were very, very few and uh, far between. Wasn't very common, but um, every now and then I would disclose that I'd actually been bereaved. But last year I spoke at a conference and I didn't speak as a midwife. I spoke as a mum. I spoke as a mother that had lost a child and it was a release. Hmm. I felt... Okay, I felt free to speak about my bereavement, to speak about my son, my boy, my sunshine. Mm. I didn't feel like an oddity. I didn't feel like, oh, there's that girl who lost her baby. I didn't feel that way. Yeah. Because I took back the power. When you lose a child, being pregnant anyway is quite like a public thing. You can't hide Mm. it come a certain point. You're Mm. very, very obviously pregnant. So when you lose a child, that's very public as well. If you've gotten, so I went, I had him when I was almost term. So I was very obviously pregnant. So public pregnancy, public loss. Yeah. And I was a student midwife at the time. When I went back to my studies, I hadn't thought about how I was going to tell people. That wasn't part of my planning of going back to my studies. It wasn't about them. It was about me, that I felt ready to go back to my training. So I remember on my first day, um, somebody asked me, so what happens is, so you're a nurse, you'll know that the course is about three years long. 
three mm. years if you don't have any interruptions if you have a baby or two it takes longer or if you need to step off the course for any other reason so I actually joined a different cohort to the one I started my training with and of course the question was posed to me uh how come you stepped off the course mm. and I just said because I had a baby oh how old is he now he goes oh actually he passed away and I didn't consider that me being so honest could stop somebody else in their tracks mm. because it was my reality it was my it was my life it was the truth yeah and I learned very quickly that not everyone can handle that mm. yeah even even a bunch of student midwives who presumably this wasn't alien to right now this is where I get myself in trouble because I'm very honest <laughs> we love that we yeah we are too <laughs> crack on so Nobody, I would don't I, want, I can't say nobody, can't make any generalizations, but generally you want to train to be a midwife to help women and birthing people and families grow their families. Mm. Yeah. And that is very much what is written in personal statements. It's very much what any reading you do prior to starting the course is geared towards. It's about helping people have babies, supporting them L- on live, the living babies, though, right? Exactly. Mm. But that's not all the job is. No, of course not. And I don't think, oh, it's bringing something else up now. Um, when I was going to interviews for this course, I actually brought up, so everyone that was there to interview was in a room together. And I actually, and we had an, a student who was actually on the course that we could ask questions to. And I asked him, so um, what do we learn about when a baby dies? I know that we're going to learn about pregnancy, the, the mechanics, the biology behind it, the progress of pregnancy, how to care for women. But what happens when a baby passes away? And the whole room fell silent and I felt all the eyes on me. Mm. Alicia, when you asked that question, was that before your son had died? Oh. Wow. Because I'm a realist. Yeah. Had you known so, other people that had been through it? No, I just, I was a paediatric nurse before. That's what it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, of course. I, and I really always gravitated towards the babies. Mm-hmm. Babies that had life-limiting mm-hmm. and life-threatening conditions. They were, I just instinctively would bond with those those babies and parents. And I would always be the one allocated to look after those babies because unfortunately a lot of them, their lives weren't very long. And I wanted to give that extra. I wanted to give the extra, take the pictures. Look, this is what he did today. I've always wanted to do that. I've always done that naturally. So I asked the question because it was a naturally occurring question for me. But I felt like an absolute, I felt, oh, you've really put your foot in it now. Did you feel that everyone thought you were being unnecessarily morbid? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Yes. Very much so. Anyway, I didn't end up going there. I didn't get a place anyway, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Went somewhere else. So when I came back after losing my son, very sorry for everyone listening. I know this is really hard to, to follow this story. This is just how my mind works. I'm very sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So I went back to uni after um, losing my son. I was very open about what had happened. Was met with a very negative. And it was not even just, <gasps> oh, I'm so sorry. That's fine. I can live with that. It's the gossiping. Mm. 
it's the trying to find out what happened to him, what the circumstances were. So going, this individual went to someone in my original cohort to ask what had happened. And that felt like a knife through my chest. It was such um, a violation of my privacy. Mm. Just met you. I've told you something really personal and your response is to dig deeper and try and find out like it's some sort of frivolous gossip. Do you Mm. think, I think people do that. I've noticed people do that a lot. And I think it's almost like they're trying to assess how much sympathy you need, like how to treat you in terms of how, how How they're trying to measure you. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. You know, how, how grief, how much in grief should you be? And and that sort of thing, like how sorry for you should I feel? Because obviously if it's a stillbirth, I'm going to feel more sorry for you than if it was 18 weeks. So, you know, that sort of thing. It just seems like people are trying to assess how you should be feeling. Thank you for that, because I've, I still carry that around with me. I've never, I couldn't break through how I was feeling to think about why, what motivated her to do that. And you've Mm. actually just explained that beautifully because I just thought you're an odd one. You're a bad egg. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But actually you've just explained the very human motivation behind that. Nasty, nasty AF, but very human, Mm. I guess. Mm. Um, very misguided uh, let's like it's a yeah. misguided thing to be thinking and thing to be trying to assess and ascertain isn't it but but it is as you say it's a, a human thing you know it's the same sort of thing as driving past a, a roadway accident and everyone turns to look and the traffic slows down because everyone's trying to get it's this this crazy like instinct instinctual behavior that that so many have yeah it's like voyeurism your yeah. like voyeuristic impulse that we have and so that was that and it really I used to avoid this person I used to feel so stressed going into class the anxiety was awful because before that I knew what had happened and the people that before I went back to uni I had a meeting with my lecturers I sent them an email to let them know what had happened the day it happened I was on the phone to my lecturer saying I want to come back to uni now because I don't have anything else to do with my life Please, can mm-hmm. I come back? Please, please, please. So everybody else knew. It's just the people that I hadn't met yet that I didn't know. And after that interaction, I just, she was like the bogeyman. It's like, oh God, yeah. not him again. Oh my God, please, no. Imagine. Uh, so I, I wonder if any of that was what she represented rather than who she actually was. Like she mm. represented this massive violation into your, and almost like a disrespect towards your son. Yes. And that's it. So it wasn't so much as who it just built up in your mind and, and it became this, you know, this horrible sort of, as you say, the bogeyman, like. Yeah, they're all talking about me. They all know. Right? Yeah, yeah. That horrible kind of yeah, thing. So yeah. And before that, I had felt no shame, no. I hadn't felt any negative feelings other than grief. Mm. But I hadn't, before then, I wasn't aware that grieving can make you feel ashamed mm-hmm. um but anyway positively for me and I don't know where I got this strength from I confronted her one day and I said listen I need you to know that what you did made me feel like this this is how you made me feel it may not have been your intention but every time I see you my legs go weak my heart beats faster and I feel extremely stressed I need to give those feelings back to you because they don't belong to me 
They didn't mm. originate with me. So here, to please take it back because I need to be able to come into the classroom and not want to pass out. And she actually received that really well. I'm paraphrasing what I said. I was a lot calmer. <laughs> but that's literally what I meant. I meant, here, have your knife back, please. Yeah. You don't know that you threw it at me and that it struck me in the heart, but it did. And I've been bleeding ever since. Mm. But here you go. And she received it really well. And then after that, I was fine. It's just I had to name what I was feeling, acknowledge it, and then acknowledge it with her. So, yeah. Very rambling dialogue there. Sorry. Is that what caused you to um, sort of shut down and not really openly talk about your grief and your son? Yeah. And that wasn't the only negative experience I had. Uh, A friend I had on the course... I used to talk about him every now and then. I had him on my screen, you know, your um, your home screen. And I spoke about him maybe once too many times. And she just snapped. It was like, I never want to hear you say his name again. I never want oh. to hear you talk about this boy again. And I think that's when I stopped. Yeah, fair enough. Wow. Why what, did she Yeah. Go? Why? I never asked her. I wasn't that brave that time because it was just so out of the blue and kind of, kind of almost vicious. Mm. Sounds quite aggressive. Yeah. I don't think it had anything really to do with me. Probably no. there was something that I was, re, I was re-traumatizing her by sharing with her. And that's when I learned that you have to feel people out. Mm-hmm. Just, yes, I'm living with it every day, but not necessarily everyone you can... Not everybody's at that place where they can. Even people that have had bereavements themselves, they're not always yeah. at that place. So that is why I'm doing the work that I'm doing now because I need people that felt the way I did to know that there's a community out there that they can access. There are professionals out there that they can access that will get it. And you're not you're not alone. You're not a freak. You're not a weirdo. You're not holding on. You're not harboring all these feelings. You're not. There's nothing wrong with you. Your baby, mm. died. your baby died. Completely normal to have the feelings that you're feeling. It's just that the way society is set up, we're very much focused on the living. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the cultural differences. So I know that from when we when we spoke before, that um, sometimes leads black women to to feel shame and silenced because culturally um, baby loss is traditionally dealt with quite differently that's a real tough one to unpack because there are so many different cultural groups so many different groups that are racialized as black and they have different cultural practices so it can vary from within countries within social groups it can really vary but I can speak from my own experience and my experience of my friends and people that I've cared for. Often there's more of a a rush to move on, Mm -hmm. forget. Um, In some instances, there may be even beliefs held that grieving too long for a baby that you've lost may hinder your further chances at becoming pregnant again in the future. It can be seen as overly morbid. It can be seen as, okay, grieve now, stop, finish, 
and then move on. There's like mm-hmm. an end point. And you know I, where that stems from? Is it is it to you know to sort of you know people try to be positive and gee you on come on you know now that that's it now let's move, let's move on with life and try again and all of those sorts of things but i don't think that's a black thing i think that's a a, a woman thing that it's a right yeah crack on love yeah mm-hmm. it's true whether it's your period whether it's labor whether it's postnatal recovery whether it's parenting we're just expected to crack on mm. and that's definitely not just a black thing. That's a society thing. That's a condition of being a woman, unfortunately. But from my experience as a black woman, I would find that sometimes those, like my elders, my respected elders would be more so. It's really interesting. Nobody talks about baby loss, not in my my circle, especially the older generations, nobody talks about their experiences of baby loss until you've had your experience. Mm. You learn that your grandma, your sister, your mum, your cousin, your second cousin and your auntie, everybody's had their experience, but we don't share until the context and the circumstance is right. I think that's I think that's not perhaps just a black thing. I think that is a baby loss thing, because certainly for me, that was I didn't find out that someone very close to me had had loss until I lost. Mm-hmm. Like everyone lots, comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, don't they? yeah, and just oh yeah, that 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 happened to me. That happened to me, and you just think, bloody hell! Like, why don't we talk about this more? Because I would love to have been there for people mm-hmm. when they were going through it, but I, you can't be there for someone if you don't know that you need to be. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? That we don't know how to share that, that we don't feel comfortable to share without judgment. So we don't share at all. And especially when it's met with people trying to minimise your grief and get you to move on and things like that, it that's just stops you from from sharing it in the first place. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. I have to agree there. Yeah. And so, Alicia, tell us about how you started the... Um, Black Baby Loss Awareness Week? So I mentioned earlier that I spoke about my son openly in public at a conference last year. Yeah. And then I started to work at Tommy's a few months later. And Tommy's have a specialist support service for Black and mixed Black heritage women. And that's the service that I primarily work on. And a lot of the calls we receive, obviously, are from Black and mixed heritage women. And a lot of the calls are about Tommy's is a baby and pregnancy charity and mm. we um, focus, one of our main focuses is, is on miscarriage and baby loss. And because that's what we're known for, a lot of the calls are about that particular topic. And call after call after call, I'm finding that women from my own community don't know a lot about the services that are available once you have lost a baby or if you want to conceive or have another baby after loss. So, that is why that was a revelation to me that a lot of the black community aren't aware of the support services that are available. And that makes me really sad because it's because of those support services that I'm here today. Mm-hmm. I have a very supportive family, but I also accessed a lot of support from bereavement midwives, um, perinatal psychologists, family liaison nurses, hospice. I could go on and on and on. And when I, 
run down this list of support services that exist, organisations like the Miscarriage Association, the Ectopic Pregnancy Trust, I've never heard of those. I've never heard Mm -hmm. of organisations. I didn't know that they exist. So I had the idea to start Black Baby Loss Awareness Week because I want to raise awareness of the the support services that exist within the Black community. Mm -hmm. Black women are more likely to suffer from miscarriage and stillbirth God knows what the stats are for ectopic pregnancy, because as we know, data collection is really super patchy. Yeah. On a whole. So I want my community to know that, yes, you are more likely to have these experiences. So you should have equitable access to the support that's available. Mm -hmm. I am only one person. The service that we have at Tommy's is only so big. We can't do it through that service alone so I need to I needed to start something bigger so the warriorship we wanted to come and tell you a little bit about it didn't we Bex and in case you're already going why we don't want to know about a fucking ship the warriorship is our online membership for warriors in this community it's packed full of stuff so we just want to tell you about some of the stuff all of the content from all of the courses that we ever run is in the warriorship so there's loads to get your teeth into and we are also developing modules for what happens after but not only that we've also got a ton of educational workshops running once a month in the coming months we have got body positivity workshop gratitude workshop and loads 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 more and on top of that we also have a resident mental health specialist and on top of that if if that wasn't enough there's 13 events every month and there's stuff popping up all the time as well that other people are organizing that you can be a part of so it really is thriving and all you have to do is head to the link in our bio or visit our website and you can be a part of this too. We love to see you there. And while you're talking about the uh, the stats, there, it's is it still um, miscarriage? Black women are four times more likely to go through miscarriage. It's I think it was forty three percent more likely for miscarriage and uh, over fifty percent more likely for stillbirth. And Shocking, why do you, why do you think that is? No, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna speak freely. There yeah, are a constellation of reasons why accessibility to healthcare services, mm-hmm. um, particularly. So it's not just black women. Actually, it's black women and women that are impacted by um, social deprivation. Mm-hmm. So if you happen to be black or mixed black heritage, and you happen to live in an area that is socially deprived, socioeconomically deprived your risk of stillbirth miscarriage goes up considerably. So these are... The- because you don't have the same access to postnatal stuff or, or generally, why? Generally. Prenatal, sorry. Prenatal. Well, yeah. Um, and neonatal death, actually. Um, these groups are more impacted by neonatal death also. If you live in conditions that are not conducive to, to good health... yeah you are more likely to have morbidity. So morbidities are like disease or, for example, diabetes, hypertension, X, Y, Z. And do you mm-hmm. mean things like um, like damp, like poor housing? or It can be poor housing. Right. It can be, um, we're already in a cost of living crisis. Mm. But even before that, people um, that are more socioeconomically deprived, they're not going to be able to afford the foods that keep us healthy. Mm-hmm. So access to 
adequate living conditions, access to healthcare, and, and information that is in a format that they can actually understand. Mm-hmm. And the links between some some community groups and healthcare professionals is really poor. There's no trust there. Mm-hmm. So if you have factors like that that are impacting the way you live your life, though your childbearing years, you are going to have poorer outcomes. And there is also the issue that I cannot avoid of um, systemic racial racism, institutional racism within maternity services and healthcare overall. There are so many examples of policies, procedures, staff, attitudes and values that impact negatively on people that do not identify as white. And those will affect our health outcomes and our pregnancy outcomes and the health and well-being of our babies. And so, can you give can you give us an example of of, of that institutionalized racism? So, for example, I'll take something really basic. So, yeah, BMI. The dependent on your BMI, mm-hmm. you can if your BMI is considered to be high, it can impact your access to something basic like a birth center, or it can put you on um, a pathway for extra scans. Or it can impact your access to X, Y, or Z. It can mean that you're prescribed a higher dose of folic acid in pregnancy. It's so many different things based on BMI alone. And BMI, those measurements are based on the bodies, the biophysical mechanisms of white men. Mm. So they're not applicable to you, Laura. They're not applicable to me. But they impact the care that we're given. So that's just one example. So it has an impact on white women and on women that don't racially identify as white. That's just one really small example. Another more harrowing example is that there are countless examples where black women have reported that they've been denied pain relief during labor or their reports of pain have not been believed. There are circumstances when you're pregnant where you have been in an immense amount of pain can mean that your baby's in danger. If you're not listened to, you could end up losing your baby. You could end up losing your life. And why are they being denied this pain relief? Because there is a belief, and quite recently it's been found in the US that medical students are being taught that there's a belief that black people tolerate pain more, better. We have a higher pain threshold, pain tolerance. So if you go into a maternity unit complaining of pain, nobody's listening to you. You could potentially be having a placental abruption. Your baby could be dying. You could end up with a stillbirth because no one listened to you. That is an example. That's being taught. That's being taught to to med students. That's being taught to med students in the US. And I find that a lot of the stuff we do over here is modelled on stuff from over there. Well, I have to say, I'm very pleased to say that when I did my training, um, I didn't learn that. And, um, you know, we are learned to, it's someone's perceived pain and and we we, we score it one to 10. And yeah, there was never any sort of generalizations on certain people, thankfully. Another Mm -hmm. example is we are taught that cyanotic infants go blue around the mouth. They've got blue lips. But if you... Sorry, what does cyanotic mean? So... When you have like a lack of oxygen. Exactly. You go, you sort of get blue tinges on your fingers and toes. But but severe cyanosis is like on the mouth and the chest. Okay. So if you've got an infant, that's my complexion, a newborn, and you're taught that 
babies that are struggling to breathe go blue around the mouth. But because my, the baby is my complexion, you can't see that. You'll think that baby's okay. That baby won't be investigated for whatever complications could be causing the lack of oxygen and that baby potentially, you know, the rest. Well, yeah, I mean, by the time you get to that sort of central cyanosis, you're talking exactly. like emergency. Exactly. If it's not taken seriously. Are there ways of seeing that on a black baby? Identifying complications ba- um, on babies and women of darker complexions isn't really taught. It's changing. Yeah. And that's mad, isn't it? The fact that it's not taught. Oh, this may be sunny, really angry. The mad the the madness that that is not taught that mm. is a thing that it's something that you you know this is this is a precious little baby and the fact that you there needs to be more tick boxes you know we we it's do it's not be, hard to teach it it's not you hard know, to teach it. us teach how to do it alongside <laughs> each other like why cannot not, there not be this is this or this is this but for babies with a a different complexion like as you've explained it why this is not this is not groundbreaking hours and hours of research stuff. This is easy to teach alongside each other. Another thing is there's a score called the APGAR score. So when your baby's born, they get a score out of 10 for things like their tone, their colour, heart rate, things like that. But um, for APGAR, one of the indicators of good health is that your baby's pink when they're born. But if you've got a baby born with my complexion, I don't know if everyone listening knows, but sometimes babies that are of black ethnicities can be born really, really pale. Like um, like when I was born, I was way fairer than I am now, way, way, way fairer. Mm. My baby hadn't actually started to develop yet. Um, but I wouldn't have been pink at birth. No. So just things like that that are so deeply ingrained in our yeah. can have an impact. Yeah. So and why not just have different because there must be a different score, a different APGAR score for, for different ethnicities, right? That that there can be there needs to be a dual process or whatever. What you can say is baby's colour is appropriate for ethnicity. Yeah, perfect. Done. More inclusive. That's a more inclusive way of looking at the health of a newborn. Mm. And it also applies to mums, mastitis. Um, it presents as redness in one or both. My boobs have never been red and I've had mastitis. Just things like that. We're not, the system, because of structural institutional racism, the system isn't built for everybody. It's not inclusive of individual differences, particularly relating to race and ethnicity. If you've got health professionals with an an ounce of like, sense then actually those things should be covered right you know people will will do those extra checks and they will write things a certain way and they will ask more questions to get more clarification but the fact is you know that when you work in the nhs you are run but you're driven by processes and paperwork and forms and tick boxes and and that must be where all these mistakes are happening i think so and I think it starts at educational level, though, because mm-hmm. the people that are creating these forms and tick boxes were educated at some point and then they didn't receive that knowledge there. But what I'm really happy about is there are student midwives coming up that are listening. They are reading. They're doing wider reading and they are insisting upon change. Yes, that's great. That is great. 
Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that we were talking about structural, you know, racism within structures earlier. And I think the thing is that we need to, to restructure this, right? We need to, we can rewrite this stuff. This is not, this is not beyond the realms of possibility to dismantle this whole topic and the whole structure and rebuild it in a way to be more inclusive and yes. to, 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 to erase that, you know, that racism, that kind of, what was it? Oh, that, that like really cat is almost a casual racism because everyone does it. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a, like without realizing that you are being so like Laura, what you told me about plasters earlier. <laughs> We're talking about yeah. how, Blasters are something that you would not well that we would never even have considered that until a few years ago and things have changed thanks to like the the Black Lives Matter movement during lockdown. But before that, you went into boots, you couldn't get a plaster that represented your skin colour, could you? No. And that is why representation matters so much. So much. Why you need people from all groups to be in all spaces it can't be dominated by one group because then mm-hmm. there is no diversity in the, any of the output mm-hmm. and it's another reason why I wanted to start Black Baby Loss Awareness Week is because I didn't really see myself represented mm-hmm. I didn't it took me so long another reason it took me so long to talk about my loss is because I didn't see anyone else like myself talking about their loss experiences and now that I'm in that space or got my toe in that space Got dipped my toe into the space. <laughs> got your toe in that space, mate. You <laughs> crack on. I'm now being introduced to so many black women, black parents that are doing this work. And it's I don't feel alone. I don't feel lonely. I feel like I can share and I can mm. spread the information that I'm gaining through the job that I do with Tommy's. And I can share through my own personal experiences with people that understand that aren't going to look at me like I'm crazy, Mm. who aren't going to turn around and gossip, who Mm. aren't going to make me feel ostracised, who are going to join forces with me and help us get this information out into the black community. Yeah, it's fantastic what you're doing. It is brilliant. And I think because like being able to identify with the story of someone else is great, right? But being represented by someone who looks like you or sounds like you or has from the same background as you is so much more validating because it really does make you feel like you're not the only one being able to identify with the stories of others is only half the battle isn't it being represented by others is is the full picture and that's mm. why it's so so important for for us you know it's a response like Laura and I feel like it's a responsibility to be able to to find as many people to represent as many different groups as we can um, enable to to enable people to feel safe and and secure and because it goes so much further this this podcast will go so much further than the three of us having a really open and frank discussion it will hopefully mm. reach the ears of someone who you are representing who yeah. who is feels able and empowered to do the same for someone else and that's how real change starts isn't it absolutely it's just sowing that seed mm-hmm if seeing an instagram post or a story that i've featured in or listening to this podcast let someone else, someone that's been through experiences that I've been through, think, oh, actually, I know what services I can access now. I know that I'm not the only one. I know that it's happening to so many other women. Mm. And this is what I just, I don't just want to, this information to reach women. I want this information to reach their partners, 
mm-hmm. their mums, their grandmas, their sisters, their aunties, because grief, losing a baby, starts you on this journey and it's like a recovery, but you're never going to fully it's not an injury that you suffer no. from. Like I mentioned earlier, it's like almost like a scab that gets knocked every now and then. It's always, always, always going to be there with you. And you have this team of people, hopefully, around you, but they're not always going to know how to support you, what support you need. If they're aware of the support, they can signpost you to as well. I'm hoping that will improve people's journeys. Absolutely. It's a journey. Yeah, because every journey is unique, isn't it? It's unique to you. And it, it's it's so it's with the, the a, a different lens. So you have a different lens from, you, you know, your education provides you a different lens, your the way where your location, you know, where you were brought up, your viewpoint, your religion, all of those things go towards making this lens through which you see the world. Mm-hmm. And even even if you're in you've experienced the exact same thing as someone else, the way that you deal with it and the way that you grieve from it and the way that you start to be able to cope with it. It's going to be completely different because you are two completely different people. And I think the more that we can take that on board and treat everyone as individuals, the more we will be able to provide that individual care to suit that 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 person on an individual basis. And I just think it's so important to listen, to listen to what people want, to meet them where they are and to listen to what they want and to act on that rather than what we think they should want or what we think they should do. Hmm. It's, just, it's just about being aware of how we support each other best. yes absolutely tell us how can we tell us a bit about black baby loss awareness week so it's the first year this year mm-hmm. it's in may am mm-hmm. i right in thinking it's the week of the 15th of may yes it's the week of the 15th so the 15th the 19th um we're putting together the final program now it's we're going to be talking about things like how to When you lose a baby, when you go back to work, what kind of support are you entitled to at work? Because I feel like I know actually that a lot of people that lose a baby when they go back to work, it's it's part of that whole get on, move on, keep Mm -hmm. going, go back to normal thing. But actually, Mm -hmm. life's not normal anymore, and you do need an additional support. And there are things that you're um, actually entitled to on a statutory basis. And these things, I'm when I'm I've been looking into this stuff, and I'm like, what? I didn't know that. For example, if you have a stillbirth, a stillbirth is classified as losing your baby after 24 weeks of pregnancy, you're actually entitled to full maternity leave. Given that you were entitled to pay. Exactly. Given that you were entitled to um, maternity pay in the first place, you can actually have maternity pay for the whole time as well. But who knows that? Mm. Those are things that can support you on your journey. Because if you're worried about getting back to work quickly because you've got bills to pay, that's an added pressure at a time when you're already so vulnerable. But yeah. if you know that you can actually take your full maternity leave and full maternity pay, gives you a bit more breathing room, a bit more space. Mm. Yeah. So those are the kind of things, kinds of things we're going to be sharing. We're also going to be speaking to um, a bereavement professional because there are so many of them out there that I want to introduce um, the audience to people that you may come across in your bereavement journey. And I'm also going to be signposting to so many different resources, including yourselves, because not everyone wants to go to sit in a support group. Mm-hmm. You can do that virtually. You can do it face-to-face if you want, but also people need to listen or like to listen to podcasts or they want to be able to go to a website and peruse the mm-hmm. content at their own leisure or they want a physical copy in their hands, or they just want a PR PR code that they can 
scan and look up the information when they're ready. We all grieve differently. We can all absorb information at a different rate. I want to just put it all out there, signpost to all of it, because and you can pick and choose what is right for you. And how can our listeners help um, raise awareness and spread your message? So it would be fantastic if you could follow me on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at midwife underscore Alicia. And you can also follow um, the Black Baby Loss Awareness page, which is at Black Baby Loss Awareness on Instagram. Um, We're both sharing the content that will be coming up. We really start promoting very heavily the beginning of May. So just keep your eyes peeled on those two Instagram pages. We've got lots and lots coming up. Brilliant. Well, we will certainly be sharing your content um, and just raising as much awareness as possible for your amazing initiative. We think it's incredible. Thank you so, so much for joining us and being so open and honest and frank. It's it's obviously a topic that as two white women, we find really quite we don't really know sometimes how to approach it. So thank you for making it so easy for us to um, to chat so openly as well. You're very welcome. This is heavy. These are heavy topics and you've made it easy to actually just be open and honest. So thank you. No problem at all. And keep in touch, won't you? Definitely. All right. Lovely. Take care, Alicia. Look after yourself. Keep in touch. Bye. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.